Since the beginning of the pandemic, the American Medical Association has led the fight against COVID-19. As the nation copes with the effects of the crisis, we continue to offer tireless advocacy and expert resources. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. This episode is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Today, we'll get an update on contact tracing from Dr. Marcus Plesha, Chief Medical Officer of the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, or ASTO, in Atlanta. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Plesha, it's been more than two and a half months since we spoke to you, and unfortunately, the numbers have only gotten worse. Let's talk about where we are right now with contact tracing in the United States, and are some states doing better than others? Yeah, uh, you know, we're we're getting there and we've certainly made progress since we last talked, but we're still really not where we need to be. Um, I think every state and a lot of local communities have begun to hire contact tracers and they're building up a workforce, but it's not clear whether that workforce is big enough. We had um, estimated that we probably need at least around 100,000 people across the nation. And, you know, last estimates I saw were maybe in the... 40,000 range. Um, so, you know, that that's a step in the right direction. It, it It is challenging to scale up something as complex as this. Uh, but, you know, we I think we clearly need more contact tracers. We're trying to shift a little bit more to, to really using metrics and not just, you know, how much is enough. We, we've sort of started to think, well, how, maybe we know if we've got enough if we're able to contact people quickly enough and if we're able to track people down in a timely fashion, you know, in that case, the system works. Um, but I, I, I don't think that we're, we're getting the kind of stats we need on that. And I think it goes back to a little bit more, need to pay some attention to the process, make sure that we've got the number of people we need and maybe look at some of the training that we're doing for them. What's the biggest obstacle to scaling the number of contact tracers? The biggest obstacle to scaling, you know, I think it's just, it's more the logistics. Um, You know, this requires hiring significant numbers of people. Um, A lot of state and local health departments, that's a a, a somewhat slow process. What we've seen is that many of them, for that reason, have chosen to contract with outside groups who can come in and hire up and scale something like this up a little bit more quickly. But even that contracting process takes a little bit of time. And, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, we the, the reason things take time in government is because we want to be transparent. We want to make sure things are done in a fair way. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of that at, at play here. Is this uh, an issue of funding? Uh, that's a little bit hard to know. We're We're hearing from our leadership that you know, that there is quite a bit of funding from the federal government coming out to states now. There was a significant appropriation that went out uh, from, from the last congressional appropriation. It went out for testing, but the understanding was that money could be used for contact tracing as well. That, that was a figure along the lines of $10 billion. It was a lot of money. You know, the question is how much of that is getting eaten up by testing. Testing is expensive, um, and states are having to cover a lot of the cost for it. But as we understand, there, there has some of those resources have been able to be used for contact tracing. So I think that's helped states and locals get started. Clearly, though, in the long run, there's going to be need to be some more resources. I understand that's been in some of the discussions around the most recent 
potential congressional funding, but as we all know, that seems to have been delayed a little bit. How does the uh, how do delays in testing, which we're seeing in many places across the United States, then uh, inhibit our ability to do contact tracing well? Yeah, that that's that is the biggest problem. It's the biggest frustration. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, if you're waiting five to seven days to get a test result back, which we've seen in some communities where they're having surges, if you're waiting that long, that's too late. I mean, first of all, you don't, you don't even know for certain that the, the, that the case is positive. And so, you know, making sure those people are staying at home, you're, you know, you're potentially missing the window for that. But, you know, five to seven days out, most of the contacts, uh, you know, they will have, if they're going to be positive, they will have turned positive themselves. And you've missed that window where you can really try to get them to stay at home and limit their contact with other people, which is probably the most effective part of contact tracing. So it really is tied very closely together with testing to make this work. Yeah. And, you know, I think what we're beginning to find is that contact tracing is going to work best in the communities where they actually have things fairly well under control. So maybe it's a better intervention when you get to a good place to stay there because you know this this pandemic and this infection requires states to be on it every second. I mean, you, <laughs> you can think you're in a really good place and next thing you know, your rates start drifting up. So I think contact tracing is really useful there to keep, once you get your rates down, to keep them down. I think once rates go up and you have some of the situations we've been seeing in the Southeast and the West, I think it's very hard to rein that in with contact tracing alone. I think a lot of states and contact tracers themselves are getting frustrated. They can't keep up. They're not getting the results back in a timely way. So I, I think it still helps, but I, I think the real value is going to be, you know, get things under control and then use contact tracing to keep them there. Yeah, it's just another example of where the system just gets totally overwhelmed in all regards, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's just really unanticipated. Are, are there any states that are doing, you know, doing this well and doing reopening well? Um, so there are several states that are doing contact tracing well. I mean, Massachusetts is a longstanding example. You know, I think all the states in the Northeast have fairly good systems. Actually, you know, every state is hiring significant numbers of people, so I, I think they're all doing it quite well. Um, you know, New York City is beginning to emerge as an interesting model. Washington, D.C., a couple of the cities out on the West Coast. So, you know, some of the big cities, we often see those as the places we can look to get some of the best practices and to kind of learn what works and what doesn't. What's, now, the, uh, what's interesting about that model? You, you mentioned New York City. What, are they doing something novel or different? It's mostly that I think they have been able to hire a pretty significant number of contact tracers. They've really looked at hiring people who will be recognized in their communities, who may be able to build trust faster and, and get people to participate in contact tracing, because that's been a problem too. Sometimes people don't want to tell us who their contacts were, and we hadn't really anticipated that, but that's that's something we're seeing. So I think New York has been able to you know, look at hiring practices that help with that. And New York and Washington, D.C. both are beginning to come out with some really good metrics, not just how many people do we have, but how, how effective are they? Are they getting in touch with the cases quickly? Are they tracking down the contacts in you know, a day or two, which is really the ideal? And uh, you know, to begin with, they weren't. Uh, you know, they, were, they were figuring it out. But what, what, it, what, what the last I saw, it seemed like some of those 
success rates were starting to trend up a bit and we, we felt like this is a system that's starting to really come together and begin to work well. This is just a, you know, a, a simple question. What actually triggers a contact tracing uh, event? Positive test? How does that yeah. actually get transmitted and what's the operation there? Yeah, it's generally a positive test. I mean, I, I think that this is varied in some communities where it's taking so long to get the test back. They're trying to do a little more communication with whoever is is administering the test. Uh, this is where physicians could come in. Uh, we talked a little bit about this on the last call. I think physicians could be really helpful um, because if somebody has the cardinal signs and symptoms of COVID, they probably have it. And you know, you may want to counsel that person a little differently and do some of the things that a contact tracer would do as far as really trying to drive home to them how important it is for them to isolate and not uh, infect other people. Um, so we're starting to see some of that. But, you know, the ideal is that, you know, the testing would be quick. You'd have some kind of electronic reporting that went straight to the contact tracing program so that very quickly and seamlessly all of this stuff would move into play. You mentioned before that there might be a realization that this is working better in places where it's under control and to keep it under control. Uh, we've seen in New Zealand, for instance, the kind of strategy of kind of go early, go hard. Are there any other countries that are doing, you know, this type of thing really well that we can learn from? Yeah, well, many of the Asian uh, countries were our first examples, uh, Korea, uh, some areas in um, China, Singapore, Hong Kong. I, I think there have been some good examples. Uh, Japan, I think, has, has has had some good results recently. Now, you know, those are those are countries that are those are societies that are very different from ours. So you have to be careful, you know, how much you 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 sort of directly adapt something that works there. But they are important because they do make that they do make the clear point that contact tracing. Can can work and can be very effective if you can if you can get it into place properly and and that's probably the main thing we've looked to those countries for is sort of you know the the encouragement that that this is worth a try and even they have struggled uh, you know they they've had to deal with you know when issues aren't going well sort of stepping back and trying to figure out what's going wrong and they certainly you know they have their rates under control much better than us but they you know if you follow the media they have. They have hot spots and they have things uh, start to turn in the wrong direction, and they're just good at acting quickly to get those things back under control. Uh, one of the hot topics right now is, of course, school reopenings. Uh, can you talk about how contact tracing will be important in areas where schools are opening for either hybrid or in-person learning? Well, you know, contact. Another thing that we've learned about contact tracing is that there's an infection control piece of it. So, you know, really, when you have cases. Uh, using contact tracing to, to keep the disease from spreading. Um, but we also learn an enormous amount from the contact tracing interviews. You know, we learn where did people get exposed? Uh, what did they do, you know, once they started getting sick? Did they think they might have COVID and stay at home or did they just continue to go about their work and their business? And so we're getting really good data to help us understand the pandemic better. And I think that will apply really, really well in schools and college settings. I mean, yes, I think there's an infection control piece that yeah, if we can move in quickly with contact tracing in some of the school settings, particularly in some of the school settings where they've, they've organized it so that students and teachers are staying in a, a similar group, a pod as we call it. So, you know, a group of students and two or three teachers 
those are the ones who are together every day. So if you get an infection in that in that group, you know you really just have to focus on that group. You don't have to worry as much about did other groups get it because they weren't in contact. Um, so I think contact tracing will be helpful to control outbreaks when we see them in schools and colleges. But probably the bigger thing is we can really learn a lot more about, you know, if kids are contracting COVID, where are they contracting it and who are they contracting it from? And then the other big thing is, you know, the, the big question is, do kids in schools who, who become positive, are they going to be a major source to take it back out into their families and communities? Because that's where things could really get problematic and, and out of control. Children and kids, they seem to fare pretty well when they get COVID. They don't get severely ill for the most part. And, you know, that would be our number one concern. We wouldn't want to send kids back to school if there was a substantial danger for them. It doesn't appear to be the case, but there is a danger that they could take it back out to the community where people are who may not fare yeah. as well. Well, I know that Astro has been working on a lot of COVID-related issues since the pandemic began. Uh, can you give us an update on, on those efforts and what you're working on right now? Yeah, the, the two things that we're doing a lot of work, and, and I, I suspect you're um, audience will be interested in this on the vaccine. And, you know, there's a lot of questions about, you know, when might a vaccine be ready? How effective will it be? What are the different platforms? But we've really tried to decide, okay, let's, let's hope for the best and, you know, expect that there will be a good vaccine, that it'll be ready fairly soon. And then how are we going to distribute it and get it out there? And, you know, who's going to get it first? Because, when it first comes out, there's going to be limited supplies. So we're doing a lot of work on that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, some of who's going to get it first is probably pretty obvious and healthcare providers are going to be at the top of that list because we have to protect healthcare providers. And we also have to make sure if they get that they don't become a vector that, you know, they're in, t in, in, t in touch with so many sick people, they could easily be a cause of spread. So, you know, that's probably fairly predictable. We have good distribution systems. Many clinicians are going to remember from H1N1 in 2009 how that worked. We had a system that that worked where providers and, and other entities would make requests into the state. The state would put those orders out, but then CDC would actually work through a distributor to distribute directly to the providers. Um, so you don't have the state as a go-between and another sort of thing that might slow things down. Th that system seems to work pretty well. We're hoping that's what the federal government will go forward with. But there's, you know, it's, it's not entirely clear. Um, the Department of Defense is very involved in the distribution. It's possible that they may play a role and may use some of the sectors and mechanisms they have to get supplies out. Um, you know, that could be a good thing. This is going to be this is going to be a heavy lift to to get the vaccine out and get it uh, to patients. Um, but we just have to be careful that we don't end up, you know, whenever you start building a new system in the middle of a pandemic, you know, you're kind of asking for problems. And so, you know, we're glad we've got something that's tried and true that we can start with. And then hopefully we can build on that with some other approaches. You the mentioned thing we're question about, uh, go ahead. I was about to change subjects to another thing we're concerned about, but did you have anything else about testing? I said, about uh, back, uh, you mentioned earlier in terms of the order and who's going to get this. I, you know, from what I've seen, there's a question about whether you start with people who are most uh, apt to get serious complications from COVID or, or, on the other hand, people that are probably most likely to be vectors or spreading that. Do you have any sense of like how those discussions occur? 
Uh, yeah, the, um, the ACIP, the American Council on Immunization Practices, that's their longstanding role as they help to strategize not just things like the vaccine schedules and the vaccine dosing, which all of us clinicians are very familiar with, you know, that, that ACIP is the ultimate source of that. But ACIP also is brought in in situations like this um, to advise on, you know, how should we how should we prioritize the vaccine when it first comes out? And, you know, you have to be realistic about this. I mean, it's going to come out, you know, hopefully in maybe the tens of thousands of doses until things gear up. So there's not en- there aren't enough doses to really concentrate on people who could become severely ill. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands or even millions of people who are at risk to be severely ill. So I think the initial, you know, if we're talking about tens of thousands, we're really going to be talking about um, healthcare, healthcare sector and, and other critical industry workers who we really need to make sure we protect. Uh, and then we'll roll it out from then. Obviously, as more doses are available, we would probably tend to look towards trying to immunize people who are at greater risk. You mentioned you had another thing you wanted to, to talk about in closing. Yeah, the other thing we're very interested in is safe voting. I mean, we're, everybody knows we're coming up on an election. Election is very, very important to our democracy. And so we're really starting to try to work with states a little bit uh, to understand what their polling processes are going to be. And, you know, we don't I think we've gotten to a place where even if it's in person voting, we can make that safe. Um, but we need we need to be very thoughtful about it, and we need to be doing some of the background work now, or you know it'll be on us before we know it. And so we're beginning to talk about uh, you know some of the things to do at the polling sites to make sure that people maintain social distance, but also we've got to protect the people who are working the polls, and we got to make sure that people aren't scared to come out and work the polls, and then we don't have enough workers. So we're we're trying to begin to look at some of those things, and we feel like that's a very important role for public health right now. Well, thank you so much uh, to you and Astro for doing that and playing that important role. I really appreciate you coming back on the COVID update and sharing your perspectives. Uh, that's it for today's COVID-19 update. For updated resources on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org COVID-19. Thanks for joining us and please take care. This content was originally published as part of AMA's COVID-19 daily video updates. Find the latest at ama-assn.org slash COVID update. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to other great AMA podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.